Hello, everyone. Titus O'Reilly here. As you may know by now, we have a membership program, Bazaar Plus, for people that love Sports Bazaar, love listening to myself and Mick talk absolute nonsense. As a member, you'll get all the normal episodes, of course. You'll get behind-the-scenes access. You'll get a weekly bonus podcast. You'll get a fortnightly newsletter, access to members-only chat room, the ability to vote on future episodes, and, of course, early access to any live shows we do. And it's very easy to join. Just go to the link in the show notes for this podcast or go to bizarreplus.com. That's Bizarre Plus, our membership program. We'd love to have you on board. It's Sports Bizarre. I'm going to kick back and enjoy this. Some of these stories you would say that cannot be true. The hunt for the weirdest. It's a real rollercoaster ride, this one, isn't it? <laughs> it makes Game of Thrones look like a sitcom. <laughs> Strangest. Hang on. He's on another level. What are you doing? <laughs> a lot of our stories that start with someone <laughs> fleeing moneylenders. Most unbelievable. This is a car crash. Stories to ever occur. We'll stop this right now. <laughs> it's just carnage. That is the densest bit of mayhem. So many <laughs> subplots in this story. In the world of sport. I think we're learning that embarrassment is not something. Sports Bizarre. A naked fan ran onto the field and slid into second base. <laughs> no, I don't drink water. I cannot stand drinking water. I am the president of everybody. I am the president of the whole FIFA. <laughs> Opened his mouth and a sparrow flew out. It's time for the leaders of the hunt. It's really simple. Get there early, get the good back. It's <laughs> Titus O'Reilly and Mick Malloy. Welcome to the latest episode of Sports Bazaar. Hello, Titus O'Reilly, doing all the heavy lifting as usual. Me, Mick Malloy, happy to be here. Totally <laughs> engrossed in this story. You're going to praise your last episode. The greatest off-season ever, you called it, and it you is. weren't lying. It was brilliant. Oldenburg, <laughs> he is my new favourite character new hero. of all time. The owner of the Los Angeles Express. So wow. we got... People should go back and listen to it because we can't pray say it all here. But Oldenburg, USFL is entering its second season with a bunch of crazy owners, basically. It's abandoned its original own idea of binding a, principles. Yeah, of has got two nutbags running the show. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's gone nuts. Oldenburg owns the Los Angeles Express. Donald Trump owns the New Jersey Generals. There's an arms race developed in salary cap spending. Like there is no salary caps. Not just internally, but with the NFL. With the NFL, Trump wants to is agitating to move to the fall season to play instead of in spring to play in fall autumn against the NFL directly for his own purposes. He wants to get into the NFL. He's hoping if we take him on directly, they'll merge with us. He's having to trash the entire league. Yeah, he emerges from the rubble, joins the NFL. And That's his whole plan. Gives them the bird as the USFL disappears yeah. in the revision mirror. That's right. So they've got the foxes in the hen house with him. <laughs> Oldenburg is nuts. You've got all these things happening. So that's where we we're, we're at. We're going to hear more from him. Please tell oh, me. We do. Oh, great. So last episode, the whole episode was the off season. Yeah. So we're starting now in the 1984 season. It's springtime in America. 18 teams. 18 teams. Starting off with your friend Oldenburg in, in LA. <laughs> One of the guys who was already playing at the Los Angeles Express before Oldenburg got there is a guy called Gregory Keith Fields. He's six foot six, two hundred and sixty-five pound defensive end. So he's a big, strong guy. Yeah. Danny Rich, the team's best linebacker, describes him as absolutely nuts, like crazier than batshit crazy. Okay. Well, that's the top level crazy. On the morning of Wednesday, February twenty second, nine ninety four, the head coach John Haddle. He decides he's got to get cut people because there's all these top players coming into yeah, now. The lot yeah. and, and Fields is one of the guys he's got to cut. Right. Right. 
Now, he doesn't know this, but Fields had been signed by the Atlanta Falcons in the 82 offseason, but was cut in training camp. And when he was cut, he locked himself in the hotel room and told the Falcons uh, defensive line coach that he wouldn't be leaving and he didn't accept being released by the team. And the police had to be called to get him out. Didn't take it well. So an employee says to Haddle, the coach of the Los Angeles Express, if you're going to sack this guy, I'd have someone in the office with you. (laughs) Haddle, though, had played for 16 years in the NFL as a quarterback. You know, with a whole bunch of teams, he's a big guy. He's six yeah. foot one, two and three pounds. So he's like, I can handle myself. Sure. I'll go to this meeting. Right, well, it's all right. I can do it. He did say he told two guys that with him, well, stand outside the door if you're all so worried, but don't come in. So Haddle covers in Fields. Fields knows what's coming. Moments before he enters the office, Fields spoke to Danny Rich, the linebacker, and said, "If they dump me, they're going to have to get the National Guard to pull me out of here." So Greg Fields enters the coach's office. He's not happy. Haddle says, have a seat. Fields says, I'd rather not. <laughs> what have you got to say? He says, well, we're letting you go. It's nothing you did. At that moment, Field punches him and he's got a bulky gold ring on his thumb, cuts his cheek deeply. Yeah. The two men burst into the room who are waiting outside, <laughs> hear the ruckus. At the same time, Haddle is popping Field with a counter left. <laughs> They're both yeah. punching on. Great. Mark Kennedy, who's one of the high-paid rookie offensive linemen that's been brought in, said, it was craziness. That was my first day with the team. The security is everywhere, scrambling around. It's like, oh, my God, what have I walked into here? Fields is escorted from the facility and ordered never to return. As he marched towards his car and carried out, he says, I'll be back to kill Haddle and beat down Keith Gilbertson, the defensive line coach. (laughs) It seems like a measured response. Measured response. Now, Klosterman, who's... Oldenburg's right-hand man running the team, he has someone reach out to a guy called Nelson Mercado, who's a security expert. Yep. Because they're a bit worried about these threats of death. And they say, we need your help. Nelson Mercado at the time is working as a private bodyguard for Liberace. (laughs) (laughs) You just keep coming. I just think you're done. The deck's loaded. And then into another. <laughs> We've had Andy, the Andy Warhol, Liberace, <laughs> Burt Reynolds, the six million dollar man. We're not even. <laughs> it's like the WWE. Yeah, it's, thing, it's, isn't like, it? you, this is the best soap opera of all time. So they call him, and Mercado says they called me and told me a disgruntled ex player wanted to assassinate their coach. Yeah. I did a lot of things in my career, but that was a new one. <laughs> he says, "Why don't you call the police?" Because he's working for Liberace in Vegas. Yeah, right. So he's like, "I'm a bit busy." They said, we did call the police, but the cops won't handle it the way you do. So Mercado says to Liberace, he's got other guys working for him. Can I have a leave of absence? I'm going to go sort this out for them, right? So he drives back to California. Now, Fields had called in. He denies this later, but Mercado says that he'd called in a threat to come to the facility on a random day armed with a Smith & Western Magnum Mm. and just start shooting, right? And in America, you take these threats seriously, right? It's like a dinner invitation. So Mercado starts following Greg Fields Every day, he puts a trace on his vehicle, yeah, and he lets the express know every day where Greg Fields is. What he's up to, he says. Fields would often park not far from the facility. <laughs> he would tell people that he had a rifle and could shoot people from far while they were training. So Melson Mercado becomes obsessed with tracking Greg Fields because yep. he thinks this is terrible. They tell him everywhere he went, he was behind him. Yeah, Fields never knew he was being tracked. Right, the whole time. Then in what is the true USFL DNA? Yeah. Mercado thinks, this is my life now, following this psychopath around. Sure. Right? At this point, 
what happens is this new team, one of the expansion teams, the San Antonio Gunslingers, who are desperate for players, don't know any of this. Yeah. They know about him punching the coach, but they don't know about the right. threats to kill. They signed Greg Fields to a free agent contract. <laughs> well, they, they Mikado, are gunslingers. Mikado He's... goes back to looking after Liberace and goes, for one, like, I've caught a break here. Problem aborted. Problem aborted, yeah. Problem solved. Now, Greg Fields flies to Texas, enters the uh, Alamo Stadium where he's greeted by the members of the coaching staff and they're all dressed in pads and helmets as a joke. And on the wall is a newspaper clipping that says the headline, Player Punches Express Coach. <laughs> Field goes, oh, man, you've got that on the wall. That's cold. <laughs> <laughs> so let's get to what may become... So that a, is a happy ending. Well, the story is not fully oh, over. Jesus. By the way, I can't believe the Gamblers was not okay, but the Gunslingers is okay. Yeah, exactly. I think the San Antonio Gunslingers, for those listening, might become a few people's favourite new team. So it makes sense that Fields, who's one of the craziest players in the USFL, is there because it is arguably one of the craziest teams of all time. All right. The guy that owns it is a six-year-old rancher and oilman named Clinton Mangers. He owns the team. Now, He, according to USFL, he had lots of money is sort of true. His official biography in the media guide for the gunslinger, so this is his own publication. Yeah. This is how his own publication describes him. They describe him as a controversial, colourful, opinionated and hard-nosed, known throughout South Texas as a man who knows what he wants and how to obtain it. He prides himself on having as many loyal friends as detractors. That's his own media people writing about him, right? Yeah. He's born in Oklahoma in 1923. He's one of seven children. He drops out of school before the fifth grade to go pick cotton. So you're really delving in. These guys like grew up in that real like dust bowl yeah, era right. of like, you know, this is real uh, of America. He never went home after that. So after the fifth grade, he never goes home yet. He has a bunch of low-paying blue-collar jobs from being he's a shrimper, he's a movie theatre janitor. His big dream when he's a young guy is to become a watch repairman. So he's got, not got a lot going on. He goes to the United States Coast Guard for a bit. But then one day he's working in a service station in Texas. Mm -hmm. He's still a young guy. This guy pulls in Lloyd Benson, who is like related to one of the former vice presidents of the United States, has been a politician, is worth a huge amount of money in land and oil deals in Texas. So suddenly he's working on the car, this very rich guy. Yeah. He's got a fortune, and this is in the 40s, of $100 million, right? So huge. So he says to Ensign, what are you doing in Texas? Where are you off to? You know, they're making small chat as he fills up mm. the car. He says, oh, Farmer Jones up the road has some land for sale. And Mangas said, oh, that's interesting. Mangas then excuses himself and goes back into the service station and then puts a call through to Farmer Jones, who he knows very well. And then he walks back out and says, Mr. Benson, you can deal directly with me. I just bought the land. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Wow. Now, Benson. That is genius. That is genius, right? So, Benson's standing there. He's just pulled in to buy petrol. He's told this kid he's off to buy this land. Suddenly, the kid comes out and goes, well, I just bought it, so you have to deal with me. This is gold. Now, Benson could have been absolutely furious, you'd imagine. Or right? impressed. Instead, he's massively impressed. And from that day forward, he takes him under his wing. Says, stop working at the service station. Come work for me. <laughs> this is a great story. This is my favorite story of many so far. Oh, this Brilliant. Is 
He starts involving Mangas in all the land deals. He teaches him the tricks of cattle, oil, and land, three big things in Texas at the time, right? He teaches them all the tricks, how to do it, everything. And and so Mangas over time, Clinton Mangas becomes the face of all the deals or the one doing it. And increasingly, um, Benson starts to just sit in the background. Like, God, yeah. he's the real power and the money. That's and right. then Paul Berger in Texas Monthly wrote, Clinton Magnus learned from Lloyd Benson the fundamental lesson of South Texas. Land is power. So Mangus, over the time with him, he then starts to come out into his own, but he becomes one of the elite property traders in Texas. Yep. Berker wrote, he has no peer when it comes to understanding the intricacies of deals. He knew how to read people. He could be charming and expansive and incredibly persuasive, or he could be belligerent and ruthless. So as the years pass, he becomes known for regularly being sued for unpaid bills and skipped taxes. He writes fake checks. He bribes whoever would do it. He's indicted in 1963 for making false statements on a loan application to the state of Texas. But he's so rich. These are all seen as the dodgy dealings of a very powerful rich yeah. man rather than he's not a con it's he's not seen as a con man, right? The price of doing business. Yeah. The, the mayor of San Antonio once said there's a role for the bull in the pasture. It's not to everyone's taste, but it's an essential role to be played. So he sort of said it doesn't need to be done. Yeah. Even his courtroom adversaries, because he's always being sued, were impressed by him. They said he's got a magnetism and a bravado that attracts people and holds them in a sort of state. This was an opposing lawyer. It's like those old stories about rattlesnakes being able to hypnotise birds. (laughs) (laughs) I wish someone would say that about me one day. You can be very hypnotic, Mick. Don't sell yourself down the river. (laughs) (laughs) Politicians, though, he didn't hypnotise, he just bribed. He gave sure. them tons of money. In a 980 alone by his county, he gave away $3 million. Now, weirdly, he gave money to Democratic candidates rather than the Republicans. Why? There were certain parts of the South Texas that were controlled by the Democrats and he Little sort pockets of was in of- that. Yeah. I think also he got more bang for his buck because everyone was bribing the Republicans. <laughs> yeah, he get to the back of the queue. Yeah, so he was like... Here. This seemed to help him. The Texas Supreme Court Justice, uh, Magnus once gave him $100,000. He once, you know, not long afterwards, there was a heated dispute over a bunch of ranch land. And, of course, that Supreme Court Justice finds in favour of Magnus. So it's often like, gotcha. it's how it works. So by this point, he starts to own all oil and gas businesses, making lots of money. He buys a 10,000-acre ranch in Freer, Texas, that he names the Magic Kingdom. He hears of the USFL. And he goes, I want in. <laughs> so he applies for an expansion team and then he bugs anyone in the league who would listen. He wants it. Now, San Antonio, where he wants it, is not an ideal location. It's the 45th largest television market. Not good. Yeah. It's got the Alamo Stadium, which had been built in 1939. So yeah. this is in the it's, 80s. It's a slump. Yeah. It's seated only 24,000. It's a high school stadium, basically. It's known as the Rock Pile. Paint's peeling, it's rust everywhere. The elevator that ferried people to the press box regularly stopped moving somewhere between the first and second levels. Daryl Muskie, who's an offensive lineman, says you'd get stuck in it all the time. It's a death trap. Thomas Aitken, who becomes the gunslinger's director of marketing, said he was an interesting guy. He said he took me on a trip before the start of the season to visit the teams in Tampa and Los Angeles to see how they did things. We went to the Bandits in Tampa Bay on a Learjet. And then instead of going to California, he decided we should go hunting in Alaska. So we went there, killed some caribou, came home like it was no big deal. Fantastic. 
The people Magnus hires to run the gunslingers are family and friends, right? Basically, well, that's not good. They have no idea how to run a football team. Oh, okay. Like no. the result was an organization that was notoriously cheap, even by USFL standards. The front office had no idea about football to the point where before the season start, they spent a lot of time and effort trying to figure out what color uniforms and helmets they needed to provide the visiting teams when they came to town. Right. They didn't know that the teams would bring their own helmets <laughs> and uniforms. This is how bad they were. Oh, yeah. The team bus was an old San Antonio school bus with a gas gauge that didn't work. So the driver would have to get out with a stick to text the fuel and it was often this is run out. not a good look for the To USFL. get their capacity, which was the minimum capacity part of the deal, they would have 14,000 folding chairs around the end zone and they'd have to be set up every time for a game. They used to try to save money by mailing press releases in bulk, yeah. often resulting in them arriving days after the games. <laughs> Among the promotions they attended were cowboys firing real guns into the air. <laughs> <laughs> the gunslingers. The gunslingers, right? During a national televised Monday night game against Houston, the stadium lights go out. So it's a live national Jeez. TV. They go out for 48 minutes. No. So, you know, this is a Monday night football game. Yeah. Huge, nationally televised. Suddenly lights up for 40 minutes. It was presumed to be an electrical failure, but it turns out, in fact, it was sabotage. Clinton Magnus had all kinds of business dealings around town and some were above boards and some were not. And what he had done is he'd crossed the guy who's in charge of power in San Antonio. So the guy cut off the power in the middle of his... National television sure. game, yeah, right? Why not? The power comes back on, but to make matters worse, at halftime, the gunslingers hold a raffle and the prize is a Dodge Charger, a 1984 Dodge Charger. Good That's prize for a raffle. A good prize. Yeah. Tom Allison, the stadium's public address announcer, has to announce the winner. He says at halftime, tonight's winner of the... And you got to remember, they've just sat through 45 minutes of the power bay now. It's come back on. Tonight's winner of the 984 Dodge Charger is, oh, my God, it's me. <laughs> Booze rained down from the stands. from the stands. It's checked and it's legitimate. He'd purchased a ticket. <laughs> Not a popular win. How much would you love to be in the stands when that happens? No. Boo. It's, there's a thing in The Simpsons where Kent Brockman wins the lottery live on air. And it's, but who knew that it happened in real life? That's a know? redraw. I don't oh, care who you are. I know. Remember, these people have guns. They're angry. <laughs> They're angry. So this is like some of the stuff that's going on. Can't make that up. Now, midway through the season, the financial cracks have started to hit Magnus. These oil business is starting to dry up a little bit, right? So yeah, okay. price of oil drops, he gets in a bit of trouble. And it's around this time that checks start to bounce. First, it's a, a trickle. Player or two would drive to the local bank and only be told, oh, there's a problem. Then it was more than that. Suddenly, a lot of the players were going to the bank to cash their checks and they're not being checked, yeah. right? Before long on payday, players are jumping into their cars after practice to race to the nearest bank in the nearby <laughs> town of Freer. The defensive backs coach said, it was like the Indy 500. Your only chance of getting money was to beat the rush. Um, Schaefer, the ticket manager, said, we went for weeks on end without getting paid. I still have checks, signed checks that I couldn't cash. They'd say, here's your checks, but don't go to the bank just yet. <laughs> the assistant equipment manager said it was ludicrous. Checks were bouncing all over the place. Somebody in the front office would actually tip off the equipment guys when the checks came in 
So we'd rush off the field, run to the office, get the checks, and haul ass to the bank and cash it. Yeah. Now, two days after an April 7 home upset in Birmingham, Mangus called the team meeting, told the players to kneel around in a circle, and he apologized for these issues. And he said, I guarantee you, you'll be paid in full. Don't worry. He said, go and visit one of my people. They'll give you a promissory note guaranteeing you all your money on my honor. Yep. Following payday, the checks all bounce again. <laughs> They fly on April 11th to Jacksonville to battle another team, the Bulls, and the flight's uneventful, but the players arrive with the checks bouncing. They say Magnus and his executive staffers all get out of the jet at the front and be met by a fleet of limousines. One of the players says, I'm going to kill him. And another player says, I wouldn't be worried at all. And he said, why? He goes, I bet they're not getting paid either. <laughs> now, yeah. Greg Fields... The man that punched his coach, oh, who you forgot about him, at the Los Angeles Express. Now, he was enjoying his time in San Antonio. Um, right? Initially. But he became increasingly unhinged with each missed paycheck. <laughs> right, not a man you want to. Nah. The losses start happening and he gets more and more annoyed. He's not getting paid. He waits for a rare day that Mangus actually shows up at the training facility. Yep. Field says, I told myself, man, I can't take this anymore. I need to do something. So I followed him home. So Fields trails There's Mangus. a pattern of behaviour <laughs> forming here with Fields. So Fields follows Magnus back to his ranch, the Magic Kingdom. He parks his car a few streets away. As Magnus walks through his front door, Fields sprints up behind him and taps him on the shoulder. Magnus turns around and is terrified to see Fields there holding a baseball bat. Uh, Fields says, hey, Clinton Magnus, don't tell me you're broke, man. You're not going to have me believe that stuff. Magnus is just staring in terror listen pay me i'm going to be a big headache for you pay me off so you don't have no big headaches the long pause magnus says can i go inside he says yep so i'll be right back he goes in fields waiting 10 minutes magnus returns he's holding a thick wad of hundred dollar bills and he says do you want to sign something field says no don't worry i'm not coming back fields retreats to his car with seventeen thousand dollars in hand right goes back to his apartment in San Antonio, packs up and drives home to San Francisco. And that's the last we ever really hear of Fields. But the record's dead for him. Right. It becomes worse and worse. In early 85, the price of oil tumbled as low as 11 to $12 a barrel and Magnus is broke. The gunslingers fire all their secretaries, all their public relations staff. Which is family, basically. Family, basically. San Antonio Express news break the story that he's broke. He revokes their press credentials straight away. <laughs> Players are starting to sell tickets to the games for food and they have to stay Oof. with fans. There's one meeting where they're asking around if someone's mum can host four players. Oh, this is a Terrible. sad state of affairs for the gunslingers. Mangus eventually is in 87. He has to get out of it. The Talig has to take, be take over the yeah. San Jose. Magnus Empire eventually collapsed in 1987. In 1991, armed federal marshals arrived at the ranch by Black Hawk helicopter to seize his property. Okay. He lost the Magic Kingdom. He's files for bankruptcy. He's convicted on federal charges of bribery and mail fraud in 1995. He appeals, but eventually they all fail. He ends up in prison in 1997. He dies in a nursing home in San Antonio in 2010. His daughter says after his death, in the paper, the San Antonio Express News, my father was a perfect example of how being an ornery old bastard can take you. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the San Antonio 
gunslingers. And was it the end of the franchise? Or just end, the end of the franchise. That's it. They basically cooked. Because other events are about to overtake everything. Oh, okay. Now, back to Bill Oldenburg, your great oh, mate. Yes, please. What's he up to? A week after the opening of the 1984 season, he hosts a dinner for team management at a very expensive restaurant in Beverly Hills. Everyone's having a great time, right? He goes up to one of the marketing executives and says, are we going to get 100,000 people for the first game? Are we? And the employee goes, uh, no, because that's just crazy. Yeah. Oldenburg, who's drunk, begins kicking and throwing chairs and fires the entire marketing staff immediately and kicks them <laughs> out of the restaurant. He's fairly impulsive. <laughs> He, does he overreact? Do you think he's that's a, man a fair that way knows of what he knows well, He's motivating the next marketing staff. He goes nuts because he's not going to get 100,000 people. And he was never going to. He was never going to. The like, stadium's was, not that big. A few weeks later, Oldenburg throws a plate of spaghetti at John Haddle, the head coach. Now, he's the one that got punched by Fields. So he's, he's, in firing all, line. he's in the firing line. Plate of spaghetti. Now, you've got to remember, they are the most expensive team in the league. Right, by some margin. Yeah. So Donald Trump's New Jersey Generals had $5 million payroll. Yeah. They have a $13.5 million yeah. payroll. So they should be winning, right? They should be winning, but they're not. So Oof. they play the Denver Gold, and the Denver Gold at one point, they score two quick touchdowns. It's at home for Denver Gold. And Oldenburg flies into a rage after the second touchdown. He begins beating the walls of his private box, and his fury spilled outside as the quarter ended. The Denver Post reported. It's in front of media, right? He goes off to the express locker room shouting that heads will roll. (laughs) During the game, he grabs uh, Dick Daniels, who's the personnel director, shoves him in the chest and screams, it isn't the effing young players. This is terrible coaching and sacks him. So he's got a history of sacking people. Now, some of this behavior could be dismissed as him being erratic because we know he's erratic. It's a loose cannon. But behind the scenes, it turns out that the FBI are investigating him. Oh, they have worked out that he is a complete conman. He has no money. It's all what? a front. He's inked the biggest deal <laughs> in sport. <laughs> yeah, he's got no money. He's not a billionaire. Despite the Rolls Royce, the charter jets, the parties, in fact, his real estate firm, Investment Mortgage International, has lost money for the last four years. It's got in trouble with bank regulators in Utah where he owns a saving institution. What he does is he buys land on the cheap with his mortgage company and then often he will then buy a savings and loan, these small banks that America had saving yes. a loan from the days, and he get them to buy it. So, for example, he buys one piece of property for $800,000 and then sells it to another company he owns for $55 million. So he's creating the money on gotcha. paper, yeah, yeah, but it's yeah. fraud, right? It was all an illusion. It soon's revealed that he's been named in 17 fraud lawsuits. The Wall Street Journal prints a headline, loan banker is said to lure weak SNLs, savings and loans into many shaky deals. So they revealed all of this, which leaves the USFL scrambling. One savings and loan regulator interviewed for this article says his successes were largely a figment of his imagination. Right, He had no money. There have always been people with ambition and dreams who thought they could make two plus two equaled five, explained John yeah. French, head of mortgage banking for Grubb and Ellis, a San Francisco-based firm. Mr. Oldenburg is trying to make two plus two equal 50. 
<laughs> so it turns okay. out that when he said, I'm worth 100 million, got his accountants to send it to the USFL, the league never really looked at it. They thought it was good. They never did a background check. So it was just a lie from his accounting firm. Why would he go into something as public and as... Because he's like a... He's he's just ego and he's nuts. His ego was like he wanted to be a big man. Gotcha. And, he, and it was like a Ponzi scheme, right? Like yeah. as long as the money he could keep keeps, doing the fraud, it was around. only when the FBI got onto him and... There were right. a few issues that okay. it actually started to come. Now, within a week of this article running, the owner, his attorneys informed the USFL that they can no longer afford to pay their bills. And the express controller said he just disappeared. Just one day he's gone. Poof, gone. That's the end of him. The USFL have already lost their owner in Chicago. Remember the other guy who ghosted this them and just said, good. I don't have enough? It's starting to look shaky. So they take over the league. So all the other owners have to basically take it up. No one at first is willing to buy it because it's got this huge payroll. Yeah. So not only is, you know, it's gone a bit shaky, but it's got this huge payroll. Finally, luckily for the league, real estate magnate and Houston Gamblers minority owner, Jay Roulet, he gets approval, preliminary approval, to take over the team. And they yep. think, good, we've saved it. Because we need LA and we need New York, yeah, sure. you know, the markets. His lawyer meets with the league, unlike... Oldenburg, who told them to get stuff. No, no. I think he said, what, you want to take want, a picture of my, my cock? cock? Yeah. General Counsel Bill McSherry of the USFL grows concerned when he starts asking financial questions of Roulet's lawyer and he won't answer them. So he starts to think, well, let's we better investigate this guy. It turns yeah. out he, like Oldenburg, is completely lying about his net worth. Good Lord. So suddenly the replacement owner's fallen through as well. So now Trump smells blood. Remember, Trump wants to move them to fall. He doesn't have the numbers. But with Oldenburg now gone and the league in disarray, he starts attacking the CEO, Chet Simons, and saying, this guy can't run a league. It's terrible. He starts poisoning everyone against yeah. the USFL's head office. He starts saying, look at the problem. We're losing LA. We're losing Chicago. I'm the only one that knows how to run a I place. I can fix it. All that, right? Jim Morrow, who coaches the Stars, says, you got to remember, we we're a new league. We had a lot of going pains, but our numbers were still good. There was no need to do this. But at the end of 84, the Philadelphia Stars beat the Arizona Wranglers 23-3 to in the championship game. It's over. And then we get to the next offseason. So in 1984, things are coming to a head with Oldenburg gone, Trump in ascendancy internally, yes. head office increasingly Weakened by all this, Trump is talking to all the owners all the time saying, yeah. we've got to change this, it's not working. Now, John Bassett, who's his big adversary, owns the Tampa Bay Bandits, who's been the one that yes. called, threat, wrote a letter threatening to punch Brilliant letter. Trump and knows what he's doing. He's the opposition. He's the last remaining with Dixon gone and a lot of the key early owners gone. He's the last bastion and the leader of the opposition to this Let's rush everything, spend a lot of money, move to fall, move to autumn. He's like, no, 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 no. And he's smart enough and strong enough. But it's discovered that he is fighting a losing battle in this thing because he'd earlier in his life had two rounds of melanoma. He finds out that he's been diagnosed with brain cancer. He's not going to make it. Okay, sure. A sports historian, Dennis Crawford, who's written a fair bit about that and has written a book about Bassett, says as Bassett got weaker, Trump got bolder. So Trump sees that his main opposition of Bassett, who's smart, is not going to make it. Bassett, despite knowing he's not going to make it, keeps fighting. 
yep. into 85. But by 1986, Bassett dies on May 14th, 1986. And the last of most of 85, he's just has to sell the team and go. Mark Tollin, who's the head of the USFL's highlight film show and goes on to direct a documentary about the USFL for ESPN. He says, Trump was a bully. From the beginning, I had enormous respect for Chet Simons and Bassett and I saw Trump bullying them and using the USFL to get NFL through the back door. The NFL didn't want him. Bassett was dying and Trump derailed Simons. He was good at finding and exploiting an opponent's weakness. So Trump now shifts to the next level in trying to move everything, right? He wants to move to fall and by challenging the NFL and fall, he hopes they either merge or just accept his team in. Yep. Jerry Argovitz, the owner of the Houston Gamblers, says yes. he was not an honourable man. The truth wasn't his thing. But I've always said one thing about Donald Trump. You don't ever underestimate Donald. He can charm you out of your pants. And he's like getting involved with a rainbow or a tornado or a hurricane or a zombie all at the same time, depending on his mood. Ted Dietrich, who had moved to Arizona as yep. the owner, said Trump was an intimidating, domineering force in a meeting. Even though the other owners were very powerful businessmen, when Trump came into the room, he dominated. So he's poisoning everyone in the background here and just going absolutely nuts. Now, the to placate Trump, they say, we give you permission to go talk to the TV networks about whether a move to fall would work, right? So this is their yep. next step. Trump goes and meets with the president of CBS Sport and the executive producer of NBC Sport, and he says, hypothetically, if we move to four, would you carry the games? And they think he's talking on behalf of the league and everything, they say, sure, we'd consider it, but, you know, what are you talking about? Trump goes back to the other owners and says, they would prefer we were in four. <laughs> Unbelievable. Uh, so the owners start to believe this. They start to go, oh, okay. Maybe Trump's right. If the TV networks want us in fall. Why would you believe this guy? Well, Why would you send him yeah. on your own? <laughs> you get what you deserve. Now, in August 1984, the USFL finally have a vote and they vote to move from spring to autumn in 1986 and compete directly with the NFL. Wow. The original owners are all opposed, but there's few of them left. Dixon's left. You've got a whole bunch of other mm -hmm. ones. But Bassett's gone and is, he's going to die soon. His salty stake in the team now. Mm. Even though Trump said all this, ABC at the last minute say, if you move, you'll breach the contract for the spring of 85 and 86. The USFL of Hyde McKinsey and company, the yes, management consultants, sure. for $600,000 they pay them to do a report of how would this work? Is it advisable to move? They say no, don't move <laughs> from spring. And the head of operations and marketing for their own USFL, the executives running it, tell all the owners, do not do, do this. But the USFL say, and Trump mainly says, these guys don't know what they're talking about. Trump gets up in a meeting and says, I've listened to all this and they're all wrong. We've got to move. They abandon it. The USFL turns down a new $175 million from ABC for four more seasons of spring football. And ESPN offered another contract worth $70 million over three years. They abandon that. They have no TV deal lined up for the autumn season. As a result of this vote, ABC withhold payments for the 985 season. Yep. The USFL owners all look at it in different ways, right? Because suddenly they're going up against NFL teams in some markets directly, yes. right? So many cities like Philadelphia, Chicago, Detroit, Pittsburgh, Washington, New Orleans already were competing against someone and now we're going directly up against it. 
a lot of them decide to just not play or leave. Oh, this is, it's over. Washington go to Orlando, become the Orlando Renegades. Originally they were going to go to Miami, but that falls through because of the vote. Yep. Mergers occur. Michigan Panthers, who are the best team in the league, merge with the Oakland Invaders. The Arizona Wranglers and Oklahoma Outlaws merge, become the Arizona Outlaws. Pittsburgh and Chicago just decide not to play anymore and go, see you later. So yeah. one of them was DeBortolo Jr., who's the guy who just goes, why would I? He was the smart guy. He just went, this is stupid, right? Trump, though, it was a two-prong attack to force himself into the NFL. The second prong, apart from the moving directly to compete against yes. him in fall, was to sue the NFL. <laughs> so on October 17, 1984, the USFL... It's not like him. Yeah. They file an antitrust suit against the NFL saying that the NFL should be limited to just two of the three networks because they currently have deals with all three, NBC, CBS, and yep. ABC, and also say that they should award the USFL $1.32 billion in damages. Trump believed that the lawsuit would void the NFL's TV contracts, force a merger, or give them so much money the USFL could fund this move to fall and be back in business. Pete Rozelle is the head of the NFL. Mm. He knows this is coming because he's smarter than yeah. all of them. He actually sent a letter to Simmons before this court case was even filed and said, it is becoming clearer and clearer that a treble damage lawsuit features at least as strongly in the USFL plans as does making your league a business and entertainment success. Now, what he means by treble damage is under the Sherman Antitrust Act in America, which is against forming monopolies, yes. if you're found to illegally form a monopoly, if you're found guilty and then damages are awarded to your opponent, whatever the damages are are instantly tripled. Right. That's called a treble damage thing, right? Yeah. So that's how you get to like a billion and almost uh -huh. it's, it's estimated it could be as much as two billion if they get this up. So it's filed in there. They basically are saying... The NFL's power has stopped us getting access to some of these TV networks and they've also tried to stop us in some cities directly competing. The NFL has to decide whether to fight it. So there's a big meeting of the NFL owners and they're all very flat because they think we could be in real trouble. Because remember we talked in the very first episode, they had to do some interesting things when they merged with the AFL and the NFL to get past antitrust laws yes. in Congress. So they know that this is an issue for them, yeah. right? That they do have kind of a monopoly. They argue it's a natural monopoly. This is just what happens. Yes. It's not an illegal okay. monopoly. So all the owners are saying, I think we're going to lose. The USFL are going to win this. We're in trouble. And a guy called Paul Tagliabue, who is the chief outside counsel for the NFL, he goes on to become a future commissioner of the NFL, runs the NFL later on. He says, and he's a younger guy at this point, but he's a prominent lawyer, he says, I have a different opinion on this question. All the owners are basically thinking we might have to give in here. He says, if you surrender this case, it'll create a precedent that any new league can start with the view of just suing you, right? Yes. So that's the first problem. He says the USFL's worst enemy is the USFL. They have cocked this up massively. They've yep. overexpanded, overspent. We can prove in court that their failure isn't because of our monopoly. Self-inflicted. It's all self-inflicted. He also says... Donald Trump is our greatest legal asset. <laughs> Let's fight. The NFL owners vote after his speech yes. and decide to fight the case. Right. January 1985, Simmons, Chet Simmons is the CEO. He quits. Trump now owns, runs the league in all but name. A guy called Harry Asher becomes the commissioner, but he's all pro-Trump. 
1984 season is like a lame duck season, yeah. right? Like no one cares, right? It ends up Baltimore Stars beat the Oakland Invaders in quite a good game, but everyone else is just not caring because teams know they're not going to come back the next year or if they the are, it's in form. Yeah, the ratings and crowds are down. Teams are riding the school buses to practice. They're playing home games three hours away from their home because they can't get access to stadiums because now that they're moving stadiums, like why should we help them? Mm. Um, one team shares dressing room space with the local rodeo. Like it's just a mess, right? <laughs> the whole thing now rests on the USFL winning this court, court case. case. If they win this court case, they can get up to almost $2 billion, yeah. right? So this is going to fund their move. To, and, and they reckon if that happens either, it'll totally make them rich and fund their move to fall yeah. and they can compete. Mm-hmm. Or the NFL will go, okay, let's merge. Yeah. Which is what Trump wants, right? By the time it goes to trial, it's May 1986. The USFL has gone down to 14 teams that are still in existence and it hasn't held a game since July 1985, so almost a year, and it barely has anyone on its rosters. All the top talent have gone back to the NFL. Yeah. Right? So it's in. It's really a league in name only. Sure. But they know if they win, it's going to totally reinvigorate them. It's heard in New York for a district judge, Peter K. Leisure. Leisure, it would be in America, I imagine. <laughs> The USFL says the NFL's bullied ABC, CBS, and NBC into not televising some of our games in the fall, meaning we tried to move to fall and they wouldn't give us a deal. They'd been told that the network didn't want it in fall, but anyway, that was their argument. They also claimed that the NFL had a specific plan to eliminate the USFL as well. Now, the lawyer for the USFL is a guy called Harvey Myerson, who Trump had selected. Sure. And like Trump, he is a pugnacious arguer. Yeah. There's one speed. It's attack, attack, attack. He says that he's got a, a bunch of um, examples of this. And one of them is this so-called plan to kill the USFF, which is done by the Harvard Business School professor, Michael Porter, becomes known as the Porter Plan. And it's all about raising up your wages to compete with the USFL, putting teams where they are to stop them being able to compete, yeah. all that sort of stuff. The NFL says, well, yeah, we did get that presentation, but we didn't act on any of it, and it's provable we didn't act on mm. any of it. Every one of the league's 28 teams are named as co-defendants in the NFL, so every NFL team, except for Al Davis, who's the owner of the Los Angeles Raiders. He agrees to be a witness for the USFL <laughs> and say that, yes, we talked about going to Oakland to kill off the Oakland Invaders. So yeah. He's the only one that's okay. not. The case goes to trial and lasts 42 days. Mm. Harvey Myerson, who's the argumentative, angry yes. lawyer, the NFL's lead attorney is Frank Rothman, and he's the opposite. He's smooth, he's very calm, rational. Yeah. He is thinking, how do we do this? He lets Myerson go, Myerson gets to go first on a lot of his interviews. It seems like the USFL are doing quite well early, and the NFL saying to Rothman, you know, what's going on? He said, just let them dig their own grave. Well, it's okay. And he said, he said everyone's going their way, but he goes, I've worked out a strategy to win this. And he's surprised at how quickly it works. His whole strategy, he says, is from day one of taking over this trial is who is my bad guy? I thought this doesn't want to be seen as this upstart little league taking yeah. on a big giant, yeah. David versus Goliath. So he said, I looked around and I thought, how do I make the USFL seem like bad guys? And he goes, the more I developed this strategy, the more I wanted Donald Trump as my fall guy. I would call it Donald versus Goliath. I would make their scheme Donald's planned, which it was. I would show that Donald Trump is not a little lightweight. He's one of the richest men in America. He was such a lousy witness for them and a great one for us. Mm. Pete Rizal gets called to the stand, the head of the NFL, to testify. He's the first witness. Over the course of five days, Myerson, the USFL 
lawyer, yes. hammers him, absolutely hammers him. He focuses on Trump's claim that the NFL commissioner had promised him a franchise if he'd abandoned the USFL in that secret hotel meeting we talked about. Lies. Both sides agreed the meeting had been held, but it was a dispute. So he gets asked by Myerson, did you tell Mr. Trump you wish he had been able to buy the Baltimore Colts and hadn't gone into the USFL? No, said Roselle. Did you tell him that if he hadn't gone to the USFL, the USFL would have died? No, Roselle said, never. Trump comes out the complete other way. He said the commissioner said to him, you'll have a good chance of an NFL franchise and in fact, you will have an NFL franchise as long as you don't bring a lawsuit and you don't move the USFL to spring. So this is Trump's case. Yeah. Trump says him and Roselle are friends. Roselle says he's not friends. <laughs> Trump says Roselle wants you in the NFL. Roselle says I never wanted him in the NFL. So they're arguing back and forward after this all the way, right? Mm -hmm. No, and, and it's up to the jury to decide. Unlike Trump, Roselle, though, is a meticulous note taker and presented his document recollections from the meeting. Of course. Rothman just knew as the lawyer for the NFL knew how to make Trump look bad. So he just let Trump keep talking the whole time, <laughs> that right? That was his strategy. Yeah. Now, one of the jurors later on, Patricia Silvia, said he did not do the USFL well. Donald Trump and I actually, this is one of the jurors, got into a staring match during the case. <laughs> I would watch the people on the stand trying to read them. So he and I started looking at each other and he tried to stare me down. It was an obvious tried intimidation. And what's funny in hindsight is this so-called business genius ruined it for them. He was not believable in anything he said. He came across as arrogant and unlikable. Unbelievable. Roselle, meanwhile, is very cool, calm, collected and has evidence, organized, right, and organized, notes, right? Yes. So this goes back and forth and it really comes down to who do you believe? Jerry Argovitz, who's the owner of the Houston Gamblers, said it was a hard thing to watch unfold. Donald didn't love the USFL, which is terrible because we had a great league and a great idea. But then everyone let Donald Trump take over. It was our death. Now, Trump started to get that the trial's not going well for him. Yeah, One of the reporters said, we would rush to the nearby pay phones in the breaks to call in information, right? Like the old days, for mobile phones. One day I walked into one phone booth. Donald walked into an adjacent one and he's absolutely mother-effing someone on the other end of the line. <laughs> So the NFL in its court case basically said, look, we do have a TV monopoly, but it's not our fault. The yeah. TVs all want us. We're not stopping anyone doing it, mm. and it's not our fault. And the USFL failed because they are hopeless. NFL Commissioner Pete Rezell said they shot themselves in the foot. Yeah. The jury breaks, but behind the scenes, the jurors are engaging in heated battles. They can't agree either. They're yelling, there's crying. They're all trying to figure it out. Patricia McCabe, these are the jurors, suffers heart murmurs. This is how stressful it is. Miriam Sanchez has headaches as well as heart palpitations. They're getting nowhere. They're screaming at each other. At one point, a juror, a Miss Stevens, she's West Indians-born nurse's aide from the Bronx. She's sitting in the jury room on a sofa while the rest of them are sitting around the table. And Lillenfeld, who's a white guy who's very pro the NFL in the jury room, says, we'd had a strong debate about a particular point. I said, why don't you two join us up here? You seem to be a minority. And when he said that, she jumped up and said, yes, I am a minority, thinking he meant her ethnicity, okay. not a voting <laughs> one. So he said it was that stressful, right? We're all at each other's. Yeah. It gets in a fifth day of deliberation and it's getting more and more intense. And finally it gets to the point where people are pretending in the jury, they're saying they want to be sick and leave, like yeah. trying to fake getting out. But finally, word comes in that they've made a decision. They all file into the court. Justice Leisure says, 
Do you find that the NFL monopolized the business of professional football, yes or no? The head of the jury stands up and says, yes. What? The USFL have won the case. Oh, 27 wow. questions then ensue are asked about each individual club. Like, do you find this club guilty? 27 times, yes. The NFL have been found guilty of running Monopoly. And so the phone oh calls gosh. start coming through. The phone call comes into the USFL offices and Steve Erhardt, who's one of the executives there, says, we're just ecstatic. We've won. Like, Trump was right. We fought the NFL. We're going to get billions of dollars in payment. This is unbelievable. A terrible result. Pete Rozell is driving into the court with his broadcasting chief, Val Pinchbeck, and they heard the verdict on the radio. They're devastated. Um, Pinchbeck says, I thought Rozell would have a heart attack. They stopped driving to the court and they tell the driver, turn around, we're going to NFL headquarters. This is the end of the, the NFL stuff. Yeah. Things calm down in the court. Everyone's celebrating on the USFL side and the NFL are dumbfounded and in shock. And it's time for the jury now to declare the way it works. The jury says what the damages are going to okay. be. Now, remember, it's an antitrust case. So whatever the damages are, gets tripled. tripled. Yeah. So it can sound like a huge number and then it's triple. Yeah. The jury forewoman, Patricia McCabe, stands up and in a flat, unemotional voice says, the damages are $1. <laughs> which is instantly tripled to $3. <laughs> Roselle hears this on the radio and gets in the car to turn around and head back to court. Trump is in court and he's sitting alongside John Mara, the son of the New York Giants owner, yeah. Wellington Mara, who is an NFL person. When the words $1 emerge, the younger Mara pulls out a $1 bill from his wallet and hands it to Trump. He says the sunken expression on his face was worse than price. Unbelievable. Now, it develops that more than one or more of the jurors thought that it was going to be a hung jury, yeah. three to three. The way they got a compromise around this is they thought we will find them guilty but we will award a $1 damage. Um, Miriam Sanchez, who had favoured the USFL cost, said some of them wanted to award as high as $300 million to the USFL, which would have been tripled. Yeah. would have been what Trump wanted. They were found this so hard to get past the hung jury and everything. They thought that what they would do is decide on the $1 amount and then they believed that would be a signal to the judge that he would decide what the damage award really should be, that this would be a single. She said, I felt we had to put our faith in the court. She says this to the media straight after yes. the thing. The USFL mice and their lawyer mice and hears this and goes, she said, what? This is not the procedure. I don't understand yes. this. Like this is not what it's meant to be. So suddenly Sanchez, after she's interviewed, is just standing there and she starts talking about it's a moral victory, but she suddenly dawns on her. That the jury have just made this have made a mistake. Completely weird mistake, right? So the USFL have suddenly gone from thinking we're saved, and the NFL go from thinking we've doomed. we're doomed to the USFL have won, but they've won three dollars. Rudy Schiffer, who's the vice president of the Memphis Showboat, says we're lost now. We're dead. This is it. Steve Erhart is the league's final executive director, and he's in charge also of the Memphis Showboats. Finally, they decide to appeal. But because the jury haven't made any technical in law mistake, yeah, that's the grounds. That's you know. it, right? No. They they lose that in 1990. It officially comes through that they've lost. By this point, it's all been wound up. But Steve Erhart, when the USFL 
finally collapses, he's left to own the trademarks and to yes. oversee any leftover business. He receives a check from the NFL worth $3.76 in damages because the 76 <laughs> represents the interest earned while the appeal was underway. <laughs> he's never checked this cash to this day. Oh, of course you would. That's on the fridge. He said he kept it in his desk, but then its existence got publicized, so he had to move it to a safe deposit box because there's a substantial market for USFL memorabilia, and he's been offered a lot of money to buy this check. Of course so you would. He says he'd rather donate to the Pro Football Hall of Fame one day. He says it's not the only check we received. Because we did technically win the case, yeah. even though we only the damages were three dollars. It's part of the court judgment where you got six million dollars in attorney's fees. He said, Of course I cashed that check. <laughs> on August first, nine eighty six, despite the appeal going on board, the USFL owners meet and vote to suspend the nineteen eighty six season. It's all done and dusted. The league is done. If they had have paid the 986 season, it would have only been eight teams left anyway, three of which were in Florida. <laughs> They'd all folded. They'd all gone. The dream was over. Out of the 23 USFL teams, only five played for the league's entire three-season duration without relocating or changing teams' names. The Denver Gold, the Los Angeles Express, and the Birmingham Stallions, the New Jersey Devils, and the Tampa Bay Bandits. They're yeah. the only ones that lasted. Only the three last teams of those would have actually played in the last 86 season if it had continued. Yeah. The amazing thing about this league is, one, it could have worked. Absolutely. This, was a, this is all the Dixon green. plan. would have worked. But just no doubt it would have worked. A new USFL has started up in the recent years and is currently running As in America speak. in spring football. A bit of a postscript to all of this. Yes, please. In 2014, the Buffalo Bills' original owner, Ralph Wilson, died. Is an NFL team. Donald Trump tries to buy the team, still chasing the dream of yeah. making it into the NFL after all this time. He's outbid by an energy magnet, Terry uh, Pagula, but the NFL also let it be known that they would reject his bid would even if it was the most because of what he did with the USFL. Totally. He fails to buy the bills and he suddenly realises he's not going to ever be an NFL owner. He decides that instead he will pursue a very unlikely run for the US presidency. Maybe it would have been better for everyone if he had have got a <laughs> Could we have sacrificed the, USFL? the Buffalo Bills? And that is the story of the USFL. What uh, implosion. What It started out with great intent found a hole in the market, the TV networks were on board. Yeah. And it was beloved, it, right? It, it was, was beloved by a lot of fan a bases. Home. Yeah. They were not competing directly. You go, this is a masterful There was plan. enough players. There was you, enough players to go around. something out of nothing where there was nothing previous. Yeah. And this can fire away as a little brother to the, an NFL where there's plenty of secondary. And you know what? Tampa Bay, New Orleans, some of these teams like that, had bigger followings than their NFL counterparts. Yes, there were some teams that were struggling, but even Dixon in his original plan said, there will be some that struggle and we'll have to probably move them. Yeah. But that's fine. It's just a perfect example of pure greed in people, <sighs> various people coming in and doing what about the bandits, though? How did Bert cope with I think Bert Reynolds has been all right. <laughs> but the amazing thing is, Mick, there's a real Tampa Bay its team now playing in a USFL. Now, it has no real relation. They just took all the trademarks and the various things. But you can go online and buy a Tampa Bay 
Bandit's T-shirt with the original logo and everything on it. And you're saying the sporting memorabilia from that league was huge. It's still beloved because it was a fun, exciting league. It brought a lot of things. The NFL had to adopt a lot of things they did, like instant replay and the two-point conversion. and There's some big sliding door moments there, isn't there? So many. That could still be firing. Yeah. If you had to pick a moment when they opened the door to the devil. And now there is the USFL is competing in spring Mm. and another one, the XFL, which is owned by The Rock, and let's not also forget, wins forget the lingerie league. <laughs> the most important league. So it has been an absolute, you know, it's just, I mean, there's just so much in there, but it is just like a pure example of greed and hubris just destroying something beautiful. Yes. That could have been fantastic. Wow. Titus, you've done it again. Well, thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for listening to another episode of Sports Bazaar. If you'd like more Sports Bazaar, things get even bizarre. join our membership program, Bazaar Plus. Very easy to do. Just follow the link in the show notes for this podcast or go to bazaarplus.com to join Bazaar Plus, our membership program.